0: Thanks so much, Ben. I invite you to grab a seat. Kevin and the, the band will be back a little bit later. And we're so excited that you're here tonight. As Emma said, my name is Chris. And if you're here you tonight after the first time, you have picked one of the best nights that you could have ever possibly picked to join us. Um, it's always a great night to come and be on. But tonight we're launching a brand new series. And so a series launch is a great time to come along because what we'll do is we'll pick a, a big idea or a theme and we'll camp out on it for a number of weeks on a bit of a journey and wrestle some questions from the ground. And so tonight we're launching a, a two-part series. It's going to be the last series we ever do in our current location. And it's simply called How to Change a Life. You might not be able to see it. We've had some funky issues with that um, graphic, kind of changing colours on us. It was white, now it's black. So if you can't see it, it says How to Change a Life. And, and really right off the bat, I want to let you know who this series is for. Uh, this series is for you if you've been at church your entire life. Because there are certain parts of church and uh, following Jesus where we just kind of get used to it. We just kind of like, just get into a habit and we get into a rhythm and then over time the things that are really, really important maybe you seem to become less important or we acknowledge them maybe as less important. This series is for you if you've maybe just come back to church after a while, or Maybe you grew up in church and then for whatever reason you walked away like, no, it's time to come back and so maybe you've been coming back for, uh, to church for a little bit maybe this series is for you as well if you've just been coming for a little while because really what we're doing throughout this series is doing something that uh, not a lot of churches do and we are kind of opening the closet, opening all the doors, and we are talking about why we do what we do. We are talking about how we go about it, what we go about, why we do why we, we do, our strategy, our mission, our vision, all that stuff. And the reason that we're doing it is simply this, because we believe that what we're doing is important enough to talk about. You ever have ever had those moments in your life where maybe you're in that job, where you're studying for that degree, and all of a sudden the life, the busyness of life just kind of seems to take hold. And so where you used to start your year planning for the future, and you used to say this is where I'm going to be in three years' time or in five years' time, all of a sudden the busyness of life that kind of evaporates, and it all of a sudden becomes like how can I get through to five o'clock, how can I get this assignment completed, how can I just get myself And when that kind of starts to happen to us, we start to get so consumed in the busyness of our lives that we lose sight of why we're studying in the first place, why we picked that career in the first place, why we entered into that relationship in the first place. And sometimes that's true of church. And so we wanted to kind of open the door and have this discussion because what we're doing, we believe, is important enough to kind of take a time out, step back, and talk about it. But before we get into talking about beyond, I want to to talk about you. And I want to ask you a question. The question is this, what do you care about? What do you care about? Maybe another way, um, if if that one's coming to mind, I don't know what I care about. Another way to kind of frame this would be to say, what are you passionate about? What are the things that, that you have going on in your life that you are so passionate about? Maybe for some of you, maybe you're, you're a musical, you're a composer, or you're a producer, and so what you're passionate about is you just love, um, I don't I'm not musical and I'm not talented at, in that way, so please, please forgive me if I butcher this, but you just love writing music. You love putting all the different layers together and kind of getting on the computer software program, maybe if you're a producer, and taking all these sounds that don't sound like great on their own, and just kind of putting them together that comes out in this beautiful piece. Maybe for some of you, what you're passionate about is writing. For you, whenever you put that pen to paper, or whenever you sit down at your keyboard with that blank page, you just write and and it just seems like time just stops. For some of you, maybe what you're passionate about, you just have a passion for learning. You don't really care what you learn about, you just want to learn new things, and if something kind of piques your interest, that's what you go after. For some of you, you could be passionate about your friendships and your relationships. You just want to be the best friend possible to your group of friends. Here's another question. What breaks your heart? What what is it that breaks your heart? Because that's a question that kind of shifts the focus a little bit. Because what do you care about and what are you passionate about is a question that's all about you and internal to you. See, when when you ask the question, what breaks your heart, that shifts the focus from you to the world. And when you hear a question like, what breaks your heart, that really says, what that kind of question is saying is, when you look out at the world, and you see the reality of the world that you're living in, what do you look at and what do you see that you say it shouldn't be that way? The way that that is should not be that way. And maybe for some of you, you've got to a point in your life where that discomfort has become enough where you actually step out and you do something about what breaks your heart. And maybe for some of you, that, that thing kind of just irritates you and bugs you and annoys you. You kind of wish you could do something about it. Maybe you've put it off for a while. Maybe you kind of know, like, when I get to a point in my life I will do something about it. Maybe that's what you're studying, or why you're studying what you're studying in the first place. Because of what breaks your heart. And this is completely different. These are things like issues like domestic violence. That's a big thing in our culture. We've been talking about it in Australian culture for a while. Maybe that's what breaks your heart. Maybe you or someone you know is affected by it, and so when you look at the world, you want to advocate and you want to help people going through and you don't want anyone to experience what you or someone else that you've been a part of. You don't want them to experience that. Maybe if you do, it's something else entirely. It could, be, it could be marriages and relationships. Perhaps you've been a part of a marriage that's broken down. Or maybe you've suffered from the fallout of a marriage that's broken down. And so what breaks your heart is when people aren't prepared for marriage or when couples are struggling in their marriage and don't get help together. So maybe your heart breaks for that. Maybe in your life you've, you've made some, some really poor financial decisions at one point or another. And you've got some help and you've got some advice and you've got yourself debt free. And now what breaks your heart is when you see other people making decisions that could lead them down the same path that you went down, so you help people. And you talk to them about their finances so they don't ever have to experience the pain Experience. And, and one, of the, one of the things that I love about, about the millennial generation, really like our generation, for most of us in the room, is that the millennial generation and the generation behind us, now because of all the opportunities that are kind of at our feet, what breaks our heart has usually turned into what our careers are going to be. And so many people step out in the world They go, this, this thing that breaks my heart is such an issue and creates such a discomfort in my life that I don't want to commit an hour or two hours a week to volunteering. I actually want to commit my entire life to making a change in this area of the world. And the thing that, that happens, like the thing that breaks your heart, may not be the thing that breaks the heart of the person next to you. It may not be the thing that breaks the heart of your parents, your brother or your sister. Chances are what breaks your heart isn't the same thing as what what breaks my heart. Because what breaks our heart is oftentimes not necessarily the fact that, oh, there's so many, because there are a lot of good causes out there. The things i listed before, like domestic violence, that's a cause that needs to be addressed. For people who um, who, who step into marriage and don't do the preparation, that's an issue that needs to be addressed. People that don't handle their money well, that's an issue that needs to be addressed. But chances are for some of you, you would say, you know what, like, there's some important issues, but they don't captivate my heart. There's something else that grabs my attention. And there's something else that I'm like, you know, that's an issue, but I know that's an important issue, but other people are going to tackle it. i am got to go over here and tackle it. And the reason why, why I wanted to talk about this, and I know we kind of jumped in really deep off the bat, like, well, Chris, we kind of jumped in the deep end. The reason I kind of wanted to jump in the deep end is because you can't really know someone, or so, until you know what breaks someone's heart. Fully know someone Because if there's that piece of you that is constantly drawn to make a difference in the world, when you look at the world day after day, week after week, year after year, and there's that piece of you that wants to do something about it, you can't fully know someone until you really, really know what it is that breaks their heart. Because oftentimes that's going to shape the trajectory of their, of their life, who they hang out with where they spend their time, where they spend their money, what they devote their career to. And the same is true with God, if you think about it, right? Because if, if you can't fully know someone until you know what breaks someone's heart, the same is true of God, that we can't fully know God until we know what breaks God's heart. And I think for such a long time, Christians and church people, followers Jesus, whatever, you like, whatever label you want to snack on it, we can often just get consumed in the busyness or the, the day-to-day rollover of church. And we can say, well, I read my Bible. Well, I prayed. Well, I listened to the latest Elevation worship song. I got online. I listened to six, six of my favorite preachers this week. I went to not one, not two, but three different connect groups. I attend three different churches. And we're kind of, we saying all this stuff and really always saying this, I know a lot about God, but I don't actually know what breaks God's heart. And so tonight, to launch this series, How to Change Your Life, I really just want to answer two questions. Because if we want to know what breaks God's heart, we need to be able to answer these two questions. So the first one is, what is God passionate about? And the second one is, what breaks God's heart? What does God care about? And what, for God, what is it that God looks at the world and cannot stop thinking about? And, like I said, it's so easy to just get swept up in the busyness of life. And that's why we're doing this series. We're going to take a time out on church for two weeks. Step back and go, hey, if if we're really called as followers of Jesus to change people's lives, shouldn't we figure out what breaks God's heart and know that in the first place? And this kind of rhythm, this kind of habit was something that the the very first um, followers of Jesus, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, kind of got into. They got kind of into this rhythm of just. Doing church and, and kind of rocking up on a Sunday. And what happened was that one day Jesus was talking to a, loud, a large group of people. They were probably loud as well. They were a loud, large group of people. And the historian, Luke, who wrote a biography on the life of Jesus, you should read what Luke has to say. But we're going to look at one part of what Luke has to say about it. because Luke rise right, of this conversation that happened because jesus was teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and he'd been teaching for a while because people um, jesus probably wasn't boring like me and people would like sit there and be like, take notes that like, jesus keep going and it was like hour number two and hour number three and hour number four and people were, like teach us more teach us more. this is incredible stuff and something begins to happen because within this large group of people there's really primarily two main subgroups and we're going to discover what they are in a second But one of the main subgroups kind of says something, and Jesus uses that as an opportunity to step into his teaching, to pull everyone out of the details and say, hey, we need to have a conversation about what God is passionate about, and what breaks God's heart. And so Luke begins this conversation this way, he kind of sets the scene, he says, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. This was no anomaly. That tax collectors and people that religious people didn't like to hang out for were hanging out with Jesus. In fact, the way we say it around here is that people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus and he liked them back. In other words, people that didn't have anything to do with church were drawn and gravitated towards Jesus because of the way he spoke and the things he taught. They wanted to hang around with him. And then what Luke says next is, is so interesting because maybe you will here tonight and I, This is your first time to church. Or your first time back in a long time. Maybe the reason is because of what Luke talks about happening next. He says this. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain. In other words, the church people said, we don't like it that those people are coming and hanging out with you, Jesus. And then he goes on. He says that the reason they were complaining was that he was associating with such sinful people, even in like how the Pharisees and church people put that label on them? Sinful. Which really means you can't hang out with us until you get rid of that label. Until you get your life together, until you sort things out, and we give you another label, you can't hang out with us. And Jesus is kind of confused. Because these people that the religious people have labeled as sinful and not good enough actually liked hanging out with Jesus. So Jesus goes, What? Well, Guys, we need to talk about this. Because this is a big, big issue. And Jesus is kind of this master teacher. And uh, Jesus kind of talks a lot in stories and what uh, parables. And you don't know what that is. It's just kind of a story that has a higher meaning or a bigger meaning. So Jesus uses this opportunity to launch into three stories that kind of tell us what breaks God's heart. And the first story goes like this. He says, if a man has a hundred sheep, and one gets lost, what will he do? And this is not, the way this question was asked was this, this is a question that is foreign to us, right? Because chances are not a lot of us in this room are shepherds. But this was a question that wasn't foreign to the people that were sitting around listening to Jesus. Because everyone in that group either was a shepherd or knew a shepherd, or, or someone in their family was a shepherd. So this was a rhetorical question. They knew the answer to this. They knew, as Jesus said, that, Why he leaves the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it. Everyone knew that, hey, if one of the sheep goes missing, the shepherd is out on a mission to find the one. Whereas for us in our culture, they're like, oh, I got 99. Why can not you get away? That's not that big of a deal. I've still got 99. But in that culture, you didn't do that. And then Jesus said, why he, and when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And everyone's like, not joyfully, but we get we get the idea of We get that he'd be pretty excited. And Jesus is in this hyperbolic language. He goes, no, I need to get you to know, understand how excited. Like, it's over-the-top excited. And he goes, and when he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors, saying, rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. And everyone's like, well, that's really over-the-top, Jesus, because no one's going to, like, call their neighbors and be like, hey, Barry, I just found that lost sheep. Like, baby, yeah, one well, of like too no, no one does that over a sheep Jesus. And then, he says this, he says, in the same way, don't miss that, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and turns to God than over 99 righteous who who haven't, but who are righteous and haven't strayed away. In other words, what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders and also to the people who don't go to church, he's saying, hey, the the minute that you stepped into a relationship with your heavenly Father, You bought him joy. And you didn't do a single thing. And that's the nature of grace. That's the nature of the gospel. That God is joyful over you when you do absolutely nothing. Then he kind of continues because he's building. He starts to tell another story. He goes, or suppose a woman has ten, I don't know why I've only highlighted the EN. Imagine that T that is highlighted. Uh, a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Now I think of this ten silver coins, this was kind of like a dowry, right? So the, the, the female, like women in that culture, they would have maybe braided it into their headdress or maybe had it sewn somehow into their garments. And their dads would have given them this dowry. And it was kind of like you know, they walked through the marketplace and when the coins clicked together the, the, this kind of grabbed the men's attention. Because essentially they're saying, the boys, I'm single, come and get me. No, not really. Um, <laughs> maybe a little bit. I'm sure the guys wouldn't have paid attention. Uh, it's kind of like the equipment of booty shorts in our culture. This was the dowry. And so Jesus, what he, what he, uh, he says, hey, this, this one piece is missing. Because there was another purpose to this dowry. Because it was kind of it was the Father's gift. To, the, to whatever man kind of captivated the heart of his daughter. It was the father's gift to say, hey, this is, my, this is my deposit to help you guys start a life together, to help you guys start building a life together. And so this, this girl, she loses one of the coins. This woman loses one of the coins. And it says, if, if someone loses it, why don't she might on of and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. And then Jesus goes on. And when she finds it, she'll call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. What determines the joy you experience in your life when you find something you've lost? What is it that, you know, when you lose something, you, you know, you've misplaced your keys, your wallet, or your phone? What is it for you? that determines the joy that you experience when you find it. The answer is the value that you place on it. So when you're just cleaning up your closet and you're like maybe you're kind of rearranging things and you get, you know, you kind of open a scrapbook or maybe you see like a year one photo, you're like, oh, that's cool. But you didn't, you know, you didn't know where it was, it was lost. But when you found it, it didn't really bring you a whole of joy to some system. But it's nothing compared to when you wake up in the morning and you don't know where you put your phone. Or you get home from uni or you get home from work and you're like, I, do, I don't know where my is, it in the car? Like, and you just like, search in the car and you're, I don't know it's not in the car and it's freaking out, right? And then you find it, you get to find my iPhone app and then you find it was just like under the seat or something. And you're joyful, right? You're joyful because of the value you place on that phone. You're joyful if you lose your wallet value you place on your credit card. What determines the joy when we lose something is the value that we place on it. And so Jesus is building and he's building and he's building and he's building to this point. And he goes on. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of the estate right now before you die. In fact, this is one of the most famous stories in the New Testament. Even if you're not a church person, chances are you've heard the story of the prodigal son. Or you've heard people say that's the prodigal son. This is that story. Chances are you didn't even know Jesus was talking about it. But essentially Jesus, and starts his story this way, he goes, I want my share now. And really what the son has done is he's walked up to the father and he's gone, Dad, one day you're going to be dead, right? dad goes, yeah. He goes, well, can we just pretend that you're dead right now? And could I take my inheritance right now and The father has a decision to make, and everyone in the audience knew what decision the father should make. Because in that culture, if a son walked up to you and said, "Dad, I wish you were dead," you'd probably do something similar that you would do in this culture—you smack him. Right? "Boy, get your act together!" I know you can't say that, but right? boy, get your act together—you know something like that, right? And if you were being outraged, you'd be furious. But then Jesus says, "Father, didn't say that." The father agreed to lie as well between his son. He says, that's fair enough. No, I I get it. You you don't want to have anything to do with me. So, sure, let's, let's pretend I'm dead. And the reason he does it is because he wants to take the shortest way back to a relationship with his son. See, up until this point, right? the father knows exactly where his son has been. He's uh, upstairs listening to his music, he's downstairs eating dinner at the family table and he's not engaging in conversation. The father knew spatially where his son was, but he wanted to connect relationally. And so he said, you know what, I'm going to give you all this money because this is the shortest route back that I can see to connect with you relationally. And then the son goes away. No, no, just go back, I I didn't put that slide in, that's okay, that's on me. And if you don't know the rest of the story, let me kind of fill in the blanks. Because the sun goes away to a distant land. And the son spends all the money, his inheritance. And we don't know how long it took the son. Jesus never says. Could have been a week. Could have been a couple of days, could have been a month, could have been a few years. All we know is that he wasted his money on wild food. He was partying it up. He was shouting rounds for everyone. He bought a penthouse on the coast, he bought that sports car, he was living the life. And then all of a sudden, he looked at his bank account, and he was broke. And so the son begins to look for jobs to feed him. But the jobs weren't paying enough, and he finds himself working this job, feeding pigs. And he is so desperate for food, that he begins to eat the food that he's feeding him. And as he is at his lowest point of his life, eating pig food, in a stomach, covered in mud, he begins to think about it. And he begins to wonder if the Father is missing him. He begins to wonder if the Father ever thinks about him. And he begins to remember. He goes, "Well, I know that my father was so rich, and he had a whole heap of hired hands. Maybe if I went back home, I could convince my father not to take me back as a son, because I know no one would ever do that. But maybe he would bring me on as a hired hand. At least then I'd have a bed to sleep in. At least then I'd have three meals a day. Maybe, just maybe, I can get a job, or I can get food, so I don't have to start keep eating out of his pieces." So, a son makes the trek back home. And what we discover is that when he was still a long way off, his father saw him. In other words, whether it had been months or weeks or years, the father had been sitting on the front porch of his house, looking at the horizon, waiting to see if his son was going to come back over the horizon. He hadn't been doing what he was supposed to do. He'd left the running of the household to his servants and to the team there. And he was sitting on the front porch looking at the horizon, waiting to see if his son would come back over the horizon. And when he sees that figure begin to appear and recognise that it's his son, this is what he does. He says, filled with anger and frustration, he rammed his son, hit him over the head, and asked, where have you been? How <laughs> are you doing? Where's my money? Where's my money, man? And for those of you who know this, you're kind of laughing because you're like, he doesn't do that. But that's what he should have done, right? If you were in the fathers' position, what would you have done? Chances are you probably wouldn't have been waiting for the son. You would have, someone would have had to come and grab you, and you would have walked in and you're like, boy, you've got some explaining to do. Tell me, tell me where, tell me why. Well, I knew you were going to, of course you you, you, uh, spent all the money. That's something that you would do. But the father's reaction isn't like that at all. In fact, the father's reaction is filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son and kissed him. The father was waiting on the front porch because he wanted to reconnect relationally And the second, he saw his son's uh, image begin to appear over the horizon, he runs out towards his son because he sees his son uh, reconnecting relationally and he makes a beeline to connect relationally with his lost son, or his son has walked away. So to answer the question, what is God passionate about? God is passionate about changing lives. God is passionate about seeing people's lives change. God is not interested in knowing spatially where someone is. God wants to connect relationally with people. And the second thing you know, what breaks God's heart? Disconnected people. God's heart breaks for disconnected people. God wants everyone to be able to connect with Him. And He is sitting on the front porch, your Heavenly Father. He's sitting on the steps of heaven, looking out into the world, waiting for people to come back over the horizon. And when they do, He's going to go running towards them to reconnect relationship. And I totally get, right, that maybe some of you are sitting here and like, okay, well, that's, that's great, Chris. But what about me? What about me, right? Because I'm a church person, okay? And uh, and it doesn't often feel good to hear that God's sitting out on the porch, looking down the road, and I'm just kind of doing my thing, right? What about me? What is is God doing for me? Please tell me what God is doing for me. And don't forget, okay? Don't forget. There are two brothers in this story. There are two brothers in this story. And this is what happens. His father said to him, look dear son, you always stay with me, everything I have is yours. Right? We had to celebrate this happy day. Because at this point in the story, what the father has done is, he's thrown a party for the young son. And the older son has heard about it. And he's walked up to the door, but he won't walk inside. And he's standing outside in defiance, going, what about me? What about me? What about me? What about me? me?" And word filters into the party. And the father steps outside had to celebrate this. And the reason we had to celebrate this is because your brother was dead. And he has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. In other words, God looks the older son in the eye and he goes, you still have everything. You never went anywhere. What do you get? You're living at home. What do you get? You've got all the benefits of being in a relationship with me and your younger brother did. And the bit that we kind of often glaze over, the bit that we often glaze over, because we can still sit there and be like, yeah, I still don't like it, I still want church to be about me, I want it all to be about me, the bit we often miss cultural, is that it was actually the older brother's responsibility to go out and get his brother to bring him back. It was the older brother's responsibility not to it was the older brothers. The reason the father was sitting on the porch looking at the road day after day, week after week, year after year, is because the older brother didn't step out and go chasing after his younger brother to bring him back. He refused. And as the church, says, there's this very, very real tension that we have to live with because the gravitational pull of the local church is always towards the 99. It's always towards the people who are already connected. But what happens... The gravitational pull of the local church moves towards the guy in because it's the one that misses out. And it's the very thing that breaks God's heart that doesn't get done. Because the truth is that you can't know how to change a life until you feel what God feels for people who are disconnected from you. If you really want to change your life, you cannot change your life until you feel what your heavenly father feels for people who are disconnected from him. And so tonight, next week, next week we're going to talk about one super, super practical way that you can begin to change a life. But this week I just kind of want to give you a test or a hard test to help you begin to move in that direction. So that you never get so caught up in the busyness of life. That you forget that god is sitting on the porch and his heart is breaking and we as the church really we as the older brother should be running out to meet our younger brother and sometimes we so often don't and sometimes we we leave it to other people and we end up hurting people as a result and we end up not connecting relationally with people as a result so i've got three questions that i want you to kind of integrate into your prayer life or in your life the first one I want to ask you is just to think about this week it simply this. Who do you pray for? Who do you pray for? The second one is what do you pray for? And the third is who are you spend your time with? I'll explain that, right? But this is what we call our full Monday here at Beyond. If you kind of like lies, lies it fancies. This is the application point of everything we've been talking about, because there's no point coming and spending time with us if it doesn't change your life for Monday. And so the first one is who do you pray for? When you get along with God and you talk, are you praying for people who are disconnected from God? Because the first sign that your heart is not breaking for what breaks God's heart is when there's no mention of anyone's name who is disconnected from God in your prayers. The second thing is, is, what do you pray for? Do you pray that your heart would break for the very thing that breaks God's heart? Because so many of us, right, and myself included, it's so easy to be like, right, God, this is what I want this week. I don't want any dramas at work. I want to have a whole heap of time to get that assignment done. I don't want to get any surprise emails. I don't want to get any surprise phone calls. I want to go out, you know, with my friends, I want to have a fantastic time. I want the week to just go fantastic. And our prayers are all about us. But how about you begin to pray this week? That God would break your heart for the very thing. And the third one is, who are you spending your time with? Do you spend your time only with church people? Because your Heavenly Father's heart is breaking for people who do not know Him. And if you want to change the lives of people that don't know Jesus, you need to spend time and invest in the lives of people who don't know Him. And I understand that this is kind of difficult, right? You're kind of like, oh, I'm going to have to pray some things. I don't normally pray. I'm going to have to hang out and reconnect with some people. I've kind of, you know, been pushing to the side because every time my church friends call me up and go and hang out with them, instead of hanging out with people who maybe don't know Jesus. But there was another biography that was written about Jesus. There's four, actually. but Matthew, he writes this about Jesus. And Jesus makes this statement. He says, when two or three, my followers gather together, I am there among them. What that means is that when we gather together, whether it's here on a Sunday, whether it's in homes and connect groups throughout the week, whether it's where two or three of you go to a coffee shop or go out to lunch, Jesus is present, which means the love of God is present in your conversations, in your interactions, and the way you engage the world around you. And so what that means is when Jesus is present, He is looking at everyone around you and everyone in your gatherings that is disconnected from him. And he is listening to what you're saying and and, and experiencing it through their ears. And he's sitting in the back and he's seeing it through their eyes. And his prayer is for the disconnected people. And if that's what Jesus' prayer is for, then how can our prayer be any, any different? And I think for so long, and some of you may be in this room, you've been hurt by the church, and you've walked away. We can begin tonight to begin to ensure that that never happens again in our generation. Could you just imagine what would happen if every single follower of Jesus across the world prayed and asked these three questions every single week? If at the front of their mind was the thing that breaks God's heart every single week and they were reminding themselves of that week in and week out and week in and week out. Just imagine how Australia would look different if every single church was focused on praying for the disconnected people. Instead of labeling people like the Pharisees did if their hearts were breaking for disconnected people. Could you imagine just what this really Every single follower of Jesus in this room asked these three questions. Here's the thing. You don't have to imagine. You don't have to imagine what your life would look like. How many lives you would change if you were to ask these three questions. Because you can begin to do it. You can begin... So begin to ask three, three questions every single week and you can begin to pray for disconnected people. You can begin to pray that God would break your heart for the things that break his. You could begin to ask these questions and you could actually change this region in an unmistakable way. Because our Heavenly Father is sitting on the front steps looking at you, And now it's time for us. To not be like the old brother. And to start racing out towards our community. To start racing out towards the people that we know in our sphere of influence. And to begin to repent. And say, hey, I know a God that has a hope and a plan and a future for your life. And he is searching for you. And he is not filled with anger and frustration. But he is filled with love and compassion. And he wants to know. I'd love to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just, I just pray that you forgive those of us who follow you, who get so caught up in our own lives and in our own business that we don't take the time to reflect or ask, you know, what breaks God's heart? Lord, I just want to ask for your forgiveness for those of us that follow you that. we don't look at the world, we lose sight of the world. We get so caught up in the here and now that we're not focused on eternity. And we lose focus, uh, we lose sight of the fact that you've changed our lives through your death on the cross. And so now we have the opportunity and the privilege to change other people. And so Lord, I just ask for your forgiveness for the times we haven't. But Lord, I pray that as we leave this place tonight, as we have conversations afterwards tonight, Lord, that this would be a turning point every single follower of Jesus in this room. That this would be a turning point that they would say, this ends with me. No longer do we point and say, well the church has hurt so many people but we take responsibility and we say no longer will I not have my heart break for the things that break people's heart. No longer will I put a barrier in the way of someone knowing you. No longer will I stand back on the, on the back of the house where I should be racing out down the road to reach the disconnect. And Lord, I pray that tonight would be a night that you would use to transform this region. That you would, we would be able to look back and say, I remember that time when we made a commitment to pray these things and we've seen so many lives change this and I pray that tonight will change everything